This is the Judaism Unbound podcast, episode four, Exodus. Welcome back to the Judaism Unbound podcast. I'm your host, Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. I thought that, Lex, before we really get into the meat of this week's podcast, since this is the first new episode that we're posting after we launched with uh, our first three episodes, we might do a very short recap for our listeners just to sort of remind people what this podcast is all about, what this part of the podcast is all about, and then talk a little bit about where we are in everything. Sounds perfect. Great. So basically the point of this podcast is that we are exploring this idea that because of the jewish times in which we live we could really benefit from a very different lens to apply to the jewish questions of our day in our episode one we went through a lot of the elements of what that lens might consist of and what we're trying to do over the first 10 episodes is to um, interview a number of people who have interesting perspectives and then try to use those perspectives to fold into an evolving lens that we're developing about how to look at Jewish questions. And then after these 10 episodes, we'll just start looking at those questions. No particular order, but we'll, we'll talk to people, we'll explore various ideas, but we'll be using this lens that we're developing over the first 10 episodes. That's basically... Uh, what this is all about. And last week in episode three, we interviewed Rabbi B'nai Lappi from Svara, a traditionally radical yeshiva, and she introduced us to her conception of what happens when there's something that she calls a crash, when basically the dominant version of Judaism that's been dominant for a while stops working for a lot of people. And she says that when that happens, there tend to be one of three different reactions that people have. What she calls option one, is people who either don't recognize that there has been a crash or don't believe that there's been a crash or there hasn't been a crash as far as they're concerned, and they're relatively content to stay within the existing paradigm. The option one is basically kind of stick with the situation as it has been. Uh, in contrast, what Binet calls option two is people who essentially leave it. She says, you know, people who find a different story that is more resonant for them and basically leave the Jewish community and go find some other way to answer the life questions that they have. And the third option that Binet told us about, option three, is basically people who find a way to create an entirely new approach by synthesizing the stuff from the old system that still works and stuff from other stories around us that are meaningful to them. And they try to weave together something very new that becomes a new paradigm of Judaism that can take us forward into the next period. Anything you want to add before we get into thinking it through? No, I think that's pretty solid. So what we want to do in these episodes that are in between our interviews is to try to take the ideas that we heard and discuss them and try to tease out implications that go beyond what we talked about with the person that we interviewed. So we talked about this a little bit with Binet, but what I was really intrigued by was this idea of how we know that a crash has taken place. And Binet said, you know that a crash has taken place, right, as opposed to some, I don't know what would be less than a crash, but some, some hiccup. But you know it's a crash and not a hiccup based on the numbers of people that are going option two, right? The number of people that are basically departing. And when I think about the various demographic surveys that we see about how many Jews are participating in Jewish institutions and the organizations that kind of dominated Jewish life in the 20th century, uh, it seems to me that that is an indication based on Binet's hypothesis that what we're looking at is a crash, that the numbers of people not participating is very, very high. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly as she was talking about. You don't measure a crash by when leadership perceive that their own work is not succeeding. It's you look at how people are voting with their feet and you look at whether people are in fact involving themselves, connected with, affiliating with whatever Judaism exists at a particular time. Right. And and I'm just trying to contrast this with the way that that data gets interpreted by the organizations themselves. It seems that organizations tend to interpret data like that in one of two ways, and sometimes both. One is to say the people are not sufficiently loyal to what we're doing, and the people are somehow at fault by not finding it of interest to participate in the organizations that we have today. And the other is that we're at fault because we're not, the organizations I mean, because we're not educating people well enough or informing them well enough about what's going on. Or maybe we have one or two problems that we need to address, but that if we were to address those problems, if we were to improve our education system, if we were to, if the people were to become more loyal, somehow we would be able to right the ship and people would, would flock back to our institutions um, and everything would be okay again. And I guess for me, the reason why this was so resonant was that it really felt to me like it was starting to get at the core of what we're trying to do with Judaism Unbound, which is to explore another possibility, which is that the people are leaving not because they are disloyal. And in fact, that's why I'm so intrigued by that data in the Pew report and in other Jewish demographic studies that indicate a very high level of pride in being Jewish and and people saying that being Jewish is really important to them, and yet they're not participating in Jewish institutions. So is it really that they are insufficiently informed or educated? It seems to me that they are sufficiently informed and educated to feel really good about being Jewish. It might be that they're so well informed and so well educated about what Jewish institutions offer that that's the reason they're not participating. It isn't in spite of their, right? It's because of the fact that they're informed. And there was actually an article not too long ago um, that came in response to a letter that was sent out by a number of Jewish leaders uh, about what we need to do for the future of Jewish vitality. And one of the interesting responses said, uh, don't imagine that people are not informed about what the Jewish community is, they are informed and they've chosen not to participate in it because it's not working for them. Right. I think this is really important for the folks who wrote that statement on Jewish vitality. That was the official name of this original letter uh, by a number of leaders of Jewish communal institutions and those who responded to it in a variety of ways because it gives a system, a, a theory through which to understand these questions. And I think Rabbi Lappi would argue that the way that statement was written, which was largely saying, all we need to do is more. We need to invest more in what we have, more education, more uh, more funding, more, more, more. And there was no real sense that what's needed is a radical departure from what we're doing, or even a, a small departure from what we're doing. And that's in a world where we have experienced a crash, I would argue that's just denial. It's just looking at the facts on the ground and saying there's something different than what they are, when in fact what we need to do is say, okay, what is actually not working at all? What is it about our institutions, our education systems, et cetera, et cetera, that are not compelling? And what don't we need more of? What do we actually need less of or different versions of? 
So let me pursue that further with you, Lex, because I think this might really get at the heart of the matter. If we accept for the purposes of the discussion that there is some kind of crash that happened, right? There's some way in which massive numbers of American Jews, at least, are not finding the content of Judaism as put out there by the main Jewish institutions of America, if they're not finding that compelling in, in, a, in such a significant way that we could call it a crash, I guess what I'm curious about is what has crashed? My answer, I don't claim to know fully the answer. That's important because if any of us really knew the answer, we would be starting thriving, amazing institutions that just work for dozens, hundreds, thousands of Jews. But what I see as patterns are a few of the following. One is that as we talked about with Rabbi Lappi, institutions were built primarily with community needs in mind. They were created for Jews to achieve community with other people at a time when Jews didn't have community with the rest of society, where they couldn't if they wanted to. And so they were built to create communities. And that was important because if you didn't have community in the Jewish space, you didn't have it at all. That's no longer the case. And so institutions that were built to achieve that purpose are no longer achieving as much as they once were. So I think that's important. I, I see that all the time. I actually just ran into a friend of mine in New York City when I was visiting. It tends to happen when you're in New York City, run into Jews you know from the past. And uh, he was super, super involved in our Hillel on campus. I was as well. And both of us are not currently members of synagogues. Both of us have looked. We both were talking about it. We've tried out synagogues in the area. And I'm actually going to be joining one in the near future that I found that I do like. But he's not. And it's not because we're not interested in being part of a Jewish space that's valuable. It's that we don't really need it just as a community center. We want it for whether it's spiritual purposes, really deep, passionate holiday observances, whatever it might be. And the places that we've tried are really just focused on getting Jews in a room, schmoozing, and I don't think that's working. So, you know, what you're talking about uh, strikes me as um, really kind of the epitome of the process that began with the emancipation of the Jews in the 18th century, let's say, when it started, right? The idea that um, for the first time in at least modern Western history, Jews were fully free to be members of the larger society. Now, they weren't fully free at first. It's taken right. a very long time for them to become fully free. But I think that most of us can probably agree that in America in the 21st century, Jews have, be have been fully emancipated. That Jews have become fully emancipated members of American society, able to participate in all or substantially all aspects of America, uh, including the various social um, aspects. I'm thinking about private clubs, fraternities, you know, and, and we could talk about sort of what are the other elements of American society that Jews kind of made their own parallel society for, because in the earlier part of the 20th century, let's say, uh, Jews were not invited to join those organizations. So even though they had political emancipation, they weren't really socially emancipated. And in a sense, what we're seeing now is that that's simply not an issue anymore for Jews of, let's say, the younger generation, because I guess as you go back, there's still 
memory, uh, maybe a personal memory, maybe the memory of a parent, a memory of a grandparent. There's still some memory of a time when Jews were not fully socially emancipated and maybe some additional pull of this idea that uh, we need certain separate Jewish social experiences, which doesn't seem to really exist anymore. So I, I guess I, I'm I'm pegging what you're talking about 200 years earlier, you know, yeah. but I, I think it's a process that, that leads to this as its ultimate conclusion. Right. I, I think of my own family history, actually. And it's funny, I think that the original barriers to Jewish equality in the social sense, etc., there were official formal barriers at first that bar Jews from participation. You're talking about country clubs, occasionally universities, that kind of thing. Those were lifted a few generations back for the most part. I mean, early, mid 20th century is when a lot of that happened. Maybe some of the last old guard institutions welcomed Jews in the late 20th century. But after that, there was still a period of informal segregation, not complete segregation, but in the sense that Jews, as a result of the formal barriers, were just in circles with one another, such that my own grandparents, all of their friends were Jewish for just about their entire lives. It's not because they were formally barred from anything, but just the way their life played out. They were friends with other Jews when it was the state of facts where there was formal segregation, formal discrimination, etc. And that just sort of carried on for a while. Then I think of my own parents, and to some extent, they were in de facto Jewish circles growing up, but they also had other ones sort of supplementary, even though neither of them grew up particularly entrenched in Judaism. Um, and then for myself, I went to a school where I was one of the only Jews. Um, I, If I wasn't involved with youth group, et cetera, which most of my friends who are Jewish were not, um, then I really wouldn't have had many Jewish friends at all. I happened to as a result of my personal circumstances. But I think it is fair to say that what you're describing is a historical development that started with immigration to the U.S., maybe maybe 200 years ago in Europe and then leading into the U.S. Yeah, and I think that if we're talking about a crash, then we probably, it's not just that the Jews were free now to sort of drift away, right? It's it, it's that too, right? But it's also that I think we would hypothesize that part of the reason why people were um, really committed to being Jewish, right, was, was because they somehow were getting their needs met through Judaism for social experiences, for for other kinds of, uh, you know, for, for whatever aspects of social life, including marriage, you might imagine that people need in their lives. You know, th they were also, many Jews were poor. And when they came to America, for example, they needed help. And the welfare state wasn't as well developed then. And, and one of the best ways to get help was through a community of uh, people that were kind of your people of origin. And uh, there were all sorts. So I'm saying there were all sorts of needs that were being met uh, for people, social needs by the Jewish community. And it seems that, especially when we're talking about young people, right, that the vast majority of those needs are still met today, right? People are not sitting around lonely. Um, they're not impoverished, etc. But they're meeting those needs out outside of the Jewish community. And therefore, they don't perceive of the Jewish community as a as a source of meeting those needs anymore. Right. And if we come back to Rabbi Lappi's lens, 
we can look at that in two ways. We can look at this whole project and say, well, I guess the project of Judaism is over. Um, that, that would be an option two perspective. Well, we, we were meeting X needs for a while, then we didn't need to anymore. So Judaism no longer needs to exist. That's one way to look at it. But from an option three perspective, it's not that Judaism shouldn't still exist. It's that it fundamentally needs to reshape what it is that provides meaning to Jewish lives. And what I gained most from Rabbi Lappi is that she said that's happened before. And not only has it happened once before, it's happened many times before. It's comforting to be able to look at Jewish history and say, well, you know, this isn't unprecedented. This is an experience that we've gone through before uh, collectively with the we referring to the Jewish people and that we can go through again. So that's why I can't be an option two person, because I do think that Judaism still has that potential to meet and exceed Jewish needs. Okay, that fair enough. But I, I want to go back to this issue of what has crashed, because I think that if we ultimately don't have a handle on that question, it's going to be hard to do what you're suggesting to go this option three, right? Ultimately, to figure out, well, what are the needs that people still have? And then is there a Judaism that could be reshaped that could meet those needs? So, you know, number one we talked about was, was social needs. Um, and it, it feels like Jews in America today don't seem to have the same kind of social needs as they, they once might have had from Judaism. And the other piece that I want to look at is the question of content needs, let's say, right? Let's talk about Judaism as a as a philosophy, as a body of, of content, as a practice, as a religion, right? Uh, regardless of the question of the social dimension of it. Uh, and, I, and I wonder if there's an important crash too that's going on there that we really need to be fully cognizant of. And, and at least I would put the locus of that crash sort of in parallel to the to the emancipation. I would I would put it in the Enlightenment and to say that what we're also seeing is a process reaching in a way its zenith um, of Jews being fully affected by the Enlightenment, um, which at least for me, sort of thinking about it uh, initially really breaks into two different pieces. One is that a much larger percentage of the Jewish population is now highly educated than it was 200 years ago, 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, right? And um, the Jews, I think, have just become used to thinking about things scientifically, literarily, using all these different lenses that they get in higher education, and they naturally bring those lenses to bear on Judaism, Right. And, uh, and on the, at the same time, I think that we have to accept the fact that the vast majority of Jews don't believe in God in the same, at least not in the same way uh, uh, that God might have been believed in previously, or at least um, um, are, are not willing and don't have to for various reasons. Right. They, don't, they certainly don't have the social pressure on them in the same way to conform to a religious lifestyle that is based on a particular conception of what God demands, whether that demand of God is put in the in the in the sort of traditional language of law and commandments or in the more modern, let's say, reform version of of the prophetic vision um, and other sort of ethical dictates that that in, this, in some sense ultimately source themselves to the vision of a deity. Right. 
And um, it feels to me like that crash has to be has to be taken really seriously. And we really have to ask this question is, you know, by the way, in, in other survey data of Jews, a much larger percentage of Jews call themselves atheists or agnostic as compared to other religious populations. And number two, that whether or not Jews necessarily call themselves atheists or agnostic, Jews behave very similarly to atheists and agnostics. So functionally, it seems that the kind of vision of Judaism and its relationship to God is something that really, um, however you feel about it, has crashed for uh, a very large number of Jews. And then you have to ask the question, is there a Judaism that could be meaningful and valuable to Jews who were atheists or were agnostics or certainly didn't believe that, that God is involved in the way that traditional Judaism seems to believe? But I think that we have to really look uh, seriously at the the crash being this piece where people, you know, they just don't believe in God in the same way. And it, whether or not they believe in God, whether or not they're looking for spirituality, right, if they look at the Bible, they can't get away from their scientific education, from their literary education, and to look at these texts. And they have to see various things in these texts that, that maybe, you know, your everyday Jews didn't focus on uh, in the past. Yeah, I think what you're describing is maybe the right term is the obligation crash or the commandedness crash. Because mm -hmm. for me, I'm actually not sure historically if Jews ever, or at least in the recent past, the last few centuries, really believed in God in massive percentages or the vast majority. I, I don't actually know. But I do know that Jews who, did, who, Jews who didn't believe in God, they still believed that they were on some level obligated to do certain things. And if they didn't do them, there were plenty of Jews who didn't. They still thought that like they were supposed to, if that uh -huh, makes any right. sense. And like my grandparents were not Orthodox Jews, but they felt that they were not doing it and that Judaism still existed as a form of commandments, a set of obligations. I think for people today, they really genuinely don't think that in not keeping kosher and not observing Shabbat, they're, they're actively breaking any rules whether it's because they don't believe in God at all or their conception of God has changed so much, they really don't think it's a problem at all. So there's almost no guilt. And there's the classic right. conception that we talk about of Jewish guilt. And I think it is really a thing of the past in a lot of ways, at least in many circles of Jews. There's no sense of, oh, I, I really should be going to high holiday services, but I didn't and I'm going to try to change that about myself. People don't feel bad about it. They go if they find something compelling, whether it's services, whether it's a Jewish event of some other kind, whether it's Jewish learning, etc. And they don't go if they don't find it compelling. So I would term it like a commandedness or obligation crash because I'm not sure if the God aspect of it has changed so much. No, that I think that's really interesting. And by the way, I'd encourage our listeners to help us out and, you know, in our Facebook page or wherever people want to discuss, you know, other possibilities and help us flesh this out about what is it exactly that has crashed, right? Because not that I necessarily want to make a, a medical analogy, but I think that it, it's a little bit helpful uh, to say you can't try to cure something until you've diagnosed it properly. And, um, and I worry sometimes that we aren't diagnosing properly what's actually going on, and therefore our attempts to intervene or to change course 
aren't successful. It kind of reminds me of that famous story about the guy who lost his wallet and then he's looking for it and a person comes up to him and, and says, you know, well, what are you doing? He says, I'm looking for my wallet that I lost. And he says, well, where did you lose it? And he says, oh, it's about, you know, half a mile up the road. And he says, well, why are you looking for it here? And he says, well, here are their streetlights. If we're not looking in the right place, then we're not going to find what we're looking for. So um, I, I, what you're talking about in, in terms of this question, you know, did Jews really believe in God for the last you know, few hundred years or even before that? You know, I, I think there is a connection there to that first thing that you mentioned about the, the social dimension, right, which is that um, if you kind of have to be part of this social structure for one reason or another, either because you're being compelled by external forces or because you have some internal needs that can only be met through this particular social structure, then you're more likely to conform to its requirements and probably internalize some of its judgments. Even if you're not going to conform in your behavior, you'll probably internalize some of your sense of what is valid and what is not valid. And, and you sort of end up with this package of thinking that you know, might might be it's sort of uh, like those surveys that show that Jews behave like atheists, even if they don't necessarily call themselves atheists. You know, similarly, you could imagine that people are behaving like believers or thinking like believers, even if they're not believers. And so just based on people's behavior, you can't necessarily tell what they actually believe. I think that's right. And I'm thinking about a few historical figures in Jewish history and broader history and historical movements that I think are relevant here. And one is Mordechai Kaplan, who I think a lot of us haven't thought about so much, but he his conception of God in so many ways is why there are so many Jews that still think of themselves as theists, but in a very different form than how other religions or other people think of themselves as theists. And his conception of God was a very naturalist form of God. It was this idea that God is a bit more process than physical presence. And that's taken hold whether we think about it or not in many of our minds. And so I think that that's part of why we might feel a little more like atheist agnostics to those who are not Jews um, or even to some who are Jews, because what God means fundamentally changed in the early 20th century with Kaplan's work. Maybe now is the um, opportunity. I want to bring in an idea that um, is a little bit out of the order that we originally thought to bring it in, but I want to bring in the work of uh, Professor Clayton Christensen of Harvard Business School. What I want to talk about in terms of Christensen is that he locates two kinds of innovation as happening in two different places. One kind of innovation, which he calls sustaining innovation, is when what we're calling option one institutions, right, the institutions that have been dominant over some period of time in the past, say, hey, we understand that we're facing a problem, you know, and that if we just stay the course, our clientele is going to shrink and we're going to have problems down the road. The only way for us to continue to be successful is to innovate. Um, but we're only willing to innovate so that it doesn't sort of threaten the core of what we are. So, um, so you know, I, I think that some really important in innovations in the Jewish world can be sort of seen that way. You know, for example, the openness of the conservative movement in recent years to gay rabbis, to, to you know, gay and lesbian congregants, gay and lesbian rabbis, uh, etc., is saying, hey, we are able to innovate our understanding of sort of what our 
Jewish sexual practices that are within the bounds of Jewish law as we see it. But we're not going to change the fact that we believe that Jewish law remains central to our conception of Judaism. So we're going to so so we're, it's still a very profound innovation and a very profound change, but it's at the edge of what we're all about and not necessarily at the very core of what we're all about. You know, similarly, we could talk about welcoming of intermarried families into a synagogue as saying, well, yeah, that's a really profound change um, in in aspects of, of what the synagogue used to be all about. But it's still not changing the very nature of the notion that synagogue remains at our core, that religion remains at our core, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On the flip side, Christensen talks about disruptive innovation. And here I don't I don't want to focus on the fact that it's disruptive or not disruptive. The point is that there's another kind of innovation that takes place outside of the existing institutions, outside of the existing dominant players in a particular. He writes about industry a lot, but his ideas are, are also broadly applicable beyond business. And he talks about these disruptive innovations is taking place among the non-consumers, the people who are currently not participating, or sometimes the very peripheral consumers, so people that are participating but not very vigorously and not sort of in the center of the uh, the, the main institutions. And, and that those innovations he talks about as having the potential to be quite a lot more radical because they do not necessarily have to hold the um, existing way of doing it in the center as the large dominant players do. But out in the margins, and we could talk about, let's say, people who have gone option two, right? People who have already left all of the institutions that have already existed. Well, for them, it may be a lot easier to create something very different because they have nothing to lose, right? They don't have to give up anything because they've already given it up. Yeah, I think that the framework is really important. People on the periphery of the Jewish community, of communities more generally being able to bring into effect changes that those on the inside would never think to do. And I had this experience myself recently. I'm working on a project that maybe we'll end up discussing called Bar 26 Fa, which um, I don't know if I'd consider it a sustaining or a disruptive innovation. I have to think more about that. But um, I do think it'll be cool. And it's a project where basically I'll be marking my own 26th birthday as twice bar mitzvah age, which is generally 13, and creating a variety of projects and observances that go along with that. And I reached out to a bunch of other people that are interested in doing the same thing. And some of them are deeply embedded in the Jewish community. Some are even rabbinical students. Others are very disconnected for a variety of reasons. And when I was framing the very question of what a bar 26 is, I was often vague, a little bit intentionally, to see what they would think of it and what their ideas would be, because I think that helps the process if we have everybody's first instincts that are very different from one another. And when I spoke to people that are deeply embedded in the Jewish community, it's not that they were bored by the idea, it's just that their ideas were, oh, cool, so I'll do like an interesting service that talks about turning 26. It's like sort of a second version of a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. And that's great. I think that some of the people in our cohort will do that and they'll find meaning in it and it'll be awesome. But when I spoke to people that are sort of distant from Jewish institutions, they're like, oh, 
I'm going to do a research project. I'm going to do something really interested related to like Jewish journalism. I'm going to do all sorts of things that probably won't happen in a synagogue, might not even be an event, but we're totally outside the box and unrelated to what the bar mitzvah experience generally looks like. It's not that I think the second is necessarily better than the first in terms of the two ways of approaching this. It's just that when it comes to radically shifting what Jewish community organizations, what Jewish individuals do to connect to Judaism, I think the latter is more likely to eventually bring some of the ideas to the forefront that will be the next successful forms of Judaism. Right. I mean, what Christensen basically says that is is that um, applying it to B'nai Lappi's uh, option one, option two, option three, what, what Christensen is basically saying is that the people who are have gone option two, Christensen would basically say, call those people, at, at the very least, he would call them peripheral consumers. And, you know, more or less, you'd call them non-consumers. And, and based on a lot of study, what Christensen would, would say is that the option one institutions, right, the old dominant institutions, there is nothing that they can do to attract those people. And the basic reason is because if they changed themselves enough to attract those people, they would have changed something so essential that was of interest to their current people that are participating in them, that those people would get angry and they would leave. And they wouldn't be able to attract enough of the new people fast enough to maintain their, let's say, financial viability in the face of all the existing people leaving. So the existing people would leave faster than the new people came and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so what he says is that there really is just no way to do that. And so, yeah, you can make some sustaining innovations and get a few more people to come and maybe a substantial number of people. But the vast majority of the people who have gone option two um, are not going to be able to be attracted back to the existing institutions. Does that mean that they are lost to Judaism? No, right? Christensen would say that what that means is that there need to be new initiatives that take place within that population of people, I would say ideally by that population of people, and that only in that milieu will there be a possibility of finding ways to get them excited. The example that you're giving about the Bar 26 Va, you know, you throw it out there and um, certain people will interpret what you're saying in a in a kind of traditional uh, sustaining kind of way, and certain people will interpret it as the more radical um, disruptive kind of way. And the theory would say the people who are interpreting it in the traditional way, um, that's great for them. Probably fewer people will get excited about the idea that they come up with um, than the people who are interpreting it in that radical way, um, for whom either people would get very excited about the idea that they've come up with itself, or the fact that they've come up with such a radically different idea will inspire other people to say, oh, wow, I didn't even realize that um, a bar mitzvah or bar, or bar 26 vote could be could be a research project. Well, so I don't want to do a research project, but maybe I'll do a you know, musical composition or whatever really gets them excited. As we talk about Rabbi Lappi's framing, I was struck by its connection both to what you just said with Christensen's work, but also to a book by Albert Hirschman called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. And 
what's really interesting is this book, it's a classic book in many ways. I actually mentioned to my dad I was reading it and he said it was assigned to him in college decades ago. But it, it was written about economics and politics by an economist, Hirschman. And it talks about what people do when they are dissatisfied with a particular institution. So it could be they're dissatisfied with a political party, they're dissatisfied with a product that they are buying regularly. And it lays out three terms, exit, voice, and loyalty. And they resemble Rabbi Lappi's framing in a number of ways, especially the first two, exit and voice. So exit, as the name suggests, refers to people who, when faced with a particular choice, um, let's say they're buying a particular product from the grocery store and they deem that it's declined in quality. These people just don't buy that product anymore. They buy a different product or they buy no product at all. That's the exit option. That would be option two in Rabbi Lappi's framework. The people that when they aren't satisfied with their master story anymore, they opt into a new master story. Voice, Hirschman's second option, relates pretty directly to Rabbi Lappi's third option, option three, which is when faced with a particular decline, those people express their discontent within the system. They don't leave. Um, this group of people, if they were dissatisfied with the product they're buying at the grocery store, they would get in touch with the company or let's say they're, they're shareholders or something. They would express somehow their discontent with the powers that be and try to change the way that things are. And the third conception, loyalty, it's not quite option one in Rabbi Lappi's framework, but it is an important factor in determining when people become option two or option three. So loyalty is basically the extent to which people will stick within their old framework, their old product, the, the amount of decline that can happen before they choose the exit option. So if you have very high loyalty, it will take a really, really massive quality decline to stop using a particular product. That's brand loyalty in the sense that we use it today. Um, and you could say that about Jewish communal institutions. If you've got a huge family history connected to a particular synagogue, to a particular Jewish nonprofit, it's going to take a really profound lapse in that institution's quality to leave. Um, if you have less of a connection, uh, less loyalty, then it'll be much easier for you to leave. So loyalty helps determine whether you will be an option two or an option three person in the face of a really deep shift. And if you really have it to the nth degree, if you have so much loyalty that almost nothing will make you discard a particular practice or product, that's an option one person. In that paradigm that you've described, one of the things that's really important, I think, for us to put out there is that Hirschman talks about exit as a legitimate way to express dissent and doesn't necessarily indicate a lack of commitment in a sense that you should have more commitment, right? When uh, Hirschman writes about loyalty, he doesn't necessarily mean that it's good to have more loyalty, right? He just means that some people are more loyal, what he calls loyal than, than others, meaning that they're more strongly connected for one reason or another. I think part of what where that helps us in this framework that we're exploring is that I think that for one reason or another, and we could also ask, is this something that could be changed? But for one reason or another, it seems that an increasing percentage of people as the generations go on feel 
less of a loyalty to Jewish institutions. Instead, what we're seeing is, I, I would say, an increasing percentage of people as the generations go on who feel, like you said, I think earlier in the podcast, who essentially just feel fine expressing their dissent through exit. Right? They don't feel guilty. They don't feel they're doing anything wrong. I think, though, that the thing that I really want to put a fine point on as we wrap up today's podcast is this point that they're not necessarily exiting Judaism, right? I think that what they're exiting is the institutions of Judaism as we have them. I think that when we look at people who appear to be exiting, it's possible that the only reason or a driving reason that they are exiting is because they haven't found any option that they could join, right? So it's not that they're saying, I want to exit Judaism, or even that I want to exit this institution and not join any other. What they're saying is that I want to exit this institution, and I would be open to joining another one if I could find one, but I don't know of any other one, so I guess I'm exiting altogether. And I think it's often even less conscious than that, which is saying, you know, I'm exiting this institution. If you ask them, they would say, I'd be open to joining another institution if there were one available. But being that I'm not going to be super active about it and there isn't one available that I know of, I guess I'll just kind of drift along. And at least in my experience, there are a lot of people who are just kind of drifting along who it feels to me like if something came about that was really interesting to them, they would happily get involved and join it. I'm really glad that you brought up the example of the Bar 26 vote because our next episode, we are going to be interviewing Professor Vanessa Oakes from the University of Virginia, and she is the author of a important Jewish book called, or an important book called Inventing Jewish Ritual. And um, she is really one of the leading thinkers about this question of how people go about inventing aspects of Judaism, changing aspects of Judaism, uh, particularly talking about ritual, but uh, her ideas, I think, are, are broadly applicable. And I'm hoping that in interviewing her, we'll be able to take our discussion from this question of what are the problems that the old institutions of Judaism are facing? What does it mean that people are not participating in that Judaism anymore? And if it turns out that it means something a little less dire than we might have thought that it means, how does it happen that people start to go about putting together some new approach to living a Jewish life? And, and that's what I'm hoping that we're going to be able to explore next week with uh, Professor Oakes and then the following week in, in talking further about her ideas and, and again, trying to fold in some other ideas. I'm excited to bring her on as well. And I really enjoyed bringing on Rabbi Lappi. And I think we're going to be engaging in a classic sort of Jewish process, which is, I think, in the Talmud. There's often one rabbi who's quoted. Um, and then the next sentence, you get a response from a different rabbi who lived like 200 years later. So they, they clearly couldn't have been in the same room at the same time, but they're talking about the same questions. And I think that with Rabbi Lappi and Professor Oaks, um, they won't be able to directly communicate with one another, but we'll sort of be connecting on the same general topics in a in a classic Jewish framework. Um, and I'm sure Professor Oaks would have something to say about why I feel the need to make that connection to a classic Jewish framework <laughs> itself. Um, little teaser there. Are there any other closing thoughts you have, Dan? I just want to really reinforce this idea that exit is not necessarily a bad thing. 
on all sorts of levels that if we understand exit to be a kind of voice, right, that people who are exiting are actually voicing something, then we need to ask ourselves the question, what is it that they're voicing and are we willing to listen? I think that that's a good place to wrap up and to remind our listeners that if they want to reach us, they can comment in the comment section of our Facebook page at Judaism Unbound on Facebook, and they can contact you and me directly either through Dan at nextjewishfuture.org or Lex at nextjewishfuture.org. And we look forward to talking next week with Professor Vanessa Oaks. And thanks a lot for listening. And this has been Judaism Unbound.